well, this last week, Lauren and I had a chance to go to a senior pastor retreat, senior pastor and wives retreat. Each year, pastors from around the world get together in one place to worship the Lord, to share stories of what God is doing, to be encouraged and strengthened, and got to talk to so many pastors about our opportunity here and get tremendous wisdom. Um, but <clears throat> as we flew in uh, and then walked down to the car rental counter, something funny happened. There was one of the other Harvest pastors with this, was at the same counter, the Avis rental counter. And I said, oh, hey, how you doing over there? Want to race to the hotel? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll race. Well, then I got my key first, so I said, come on, let's go. So Lauren and I raced to the car, and I was, you know, trash-talking the whole way. Ha, <laughs> ha, we're going to beat you. And uh, on the way to the car, uh, I looked down, and I realized that there was no key on the key ring. Um, so I was like, wait, uh-oh. But, but there was like a door opener, so we got to the car, opened the door, got in, and I realized it was one of those, like, keyless cars, you know, the, the push-button start. And I've never been in one of these cars in my entire life. So I thought, all right, this is interesting. So sat down, buckled our seatbelts, and it's like, how do I start it? Well, there's a button that says start, stop. I thought, okay, easy enough. Push the button, and this, like, screen turns on and says, welcome. And I thought, oh, that's a nice, friendly car. Uh, welcome. And the radio turned on, and the air conditioning turned on, but the car didn't turn on. So I was like, car didn't start, huh? And Lauren said, well, maybe push it again. So I pushed it again, and then the screen said, goodbye, and the car shut off. I said, well, that didn't work. She said, well, maybe push it twice. So I pushed it twice, and it said, welcome, goodbye. <laughs> turned on, turned off. I said, we've got to get this car started. You know, the other pastor's like in his car. I'm like, we're going to lose this race. And, and so we started trying everything, just pushing buttons and, and trying to figure it out. We, I pulled out my phone and Googled, you know, like start keyless car and and it, it just wouldn't start. Uh, we, we tried to call the company, but there was no cell reception in the parking garage. It took 10 minutes. We're just sitting there, and I'm like, this whole retreat, we're just going to be stuck in the car because I can't start it. And, and finally, somehow, I accidentally pushed on the brake while I pushed the button. Then the car started. They don't put that anywhere that you have to hit the brakes on a car that's not running to get the car to start. I don't know who thought of that, but I stumbled upon it on accident, and the car started, and we lost the race. (sighs) It was one of the most frustrating experiences uh, that I've ever had in an automobile. Now, as I I relive that story, I think that that illustrates a lot about how a spiritual walk with God begins. There is a first thing that must happen between you and God, to get your relationship moving forward. Whatever else you do in life, whatever else you learn in life, you're getting nowhere with God until you know the first thing you have to do. Listen, I know a whole lot about cars and driving and the rules of the road. I didn't know the first thing. All of my other information and skills was meaningless because the car wasn't even running. I was getting nowhere. I want to share with you today about the first thing that must happen between you and God if you are going to get anywhere with Him in this life and if you are going to be with Him forever in the next life. If this first thing has not happened, you're going nowhere with God right now. If this first thing has happened, you're going forward with God now and you'll be with Him forever. Let's pray and then I'll share with you what this very first thing is 
in your spiritual relationship with God is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm grateful that you give us so many instructions for life, the rules of the road for the Christian journey. But uh, Lord, all those are pointless if we don't do the first thing. Meaningless. Uh, And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning, speak to us, showing us where it all begins so that we can have clarity on that, so that we can know the joy of moving forward with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 9. Uh, This sermon, like a few others that have been in this series, this sermon is going to be filled with many verses that we're going to have on the screen for you. It's more of a topical overview of this idea. Uh, But we are going to start at one place, and that's in John, chapter 9, verse 35. To give you a little background here, there was a man who was born blind. Have you ever had trouble with your vision? You ever had trouble? I woke up one morning and my left eye was all sore and I put my contacts in, started driving to work, and by the time I got halfway to work, my left eye, the light was like a knife. I, I couldn't even open my left eye, and then the right eye started feeling left out, so my right eye started closing. By the time I got to the office, I couldn't open my eyes. I like walked upstairs and shut all the lights off, and I told Pastor Mark, dude, you got to take me to the eye doctor. I can't even open my eyes. Turns out I had like a nasty infection or some allergic reaction in my eyes. So I had to take my contacts out and wait for a few hours to get glasses. The whole time I was like helpless, like, Mark, show me where to go. I need lunch. Where's the bathroom? Like pathetic. Okay, well, that was that was life for this guy. This guy was born blind. And one day he came up to Christ and asked for Christ to give him his sight. And Jesus healed him. He healed him and gave him his sight like that. The religious leaders weren't too happy about it because it happened on the Sabbath. So they hauled this guy in and said, who did this to you? What did he do? And he's like, I don't, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And because he claimed to be a follower of Christ, they threw him out of the synagogue. Okay, that was really bad. It's like getting cast out of the church. So Jesus tracks this guy down, and this is our story in John 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The phrase Son of Man is an Old Testament title for the Savior, the Messiah, used a lot in Daniel. So when Jesus said that, he's talking about himself. Do you you believe in the Son of Man, meaning the Savior who's coming to rule forever? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Remember me from this morning? I'm the one who gave you your sight. This guy just met Christ that morning. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Listen, Lord, that's a title of God. Lord, I believe. That's faith. And then he worshipped him. He fell on his face and he gave him praise and adoration, which is only due to God. This is what is called saving faith. Saving faith is the first thing that must happen in your relationship with God for you to get anywhere with God in life. Everything in your life that happens is God's way of driving you to your face at the feet of his Son. Filled with faith that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Savior, the promised ruler. That's saving faith. Saving faith happens in a moment. It's not like walking faith that takes you through your day. Saving faith starts your relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This guy just got saved. He fell on his face before Christ who gave him physical sight. Jesus then gave a little spiritual lesson. He said, this is why I came into the world, that those who are blind can see. 
Meaning, spiritually, we are born blind. We can't see the truth. It's when Jesus comes into our life and we ask him to heal us spiritually that he gives us sight spiritually. The lights come on. We're born again. We're saved. It happens in an instant and it changes your life forever. It's called being saved. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Here's what Christians must believe. Here's what you must believe in order to be saved. You can write this down. Uh, I believe Jesus is God's son who came from heaven to save sinners by dying for them on the cross and rising on the third day as Lord forever. This is the gospel. I believe that Jesus is God's son who came from heaven to save sinners by dying for them on the cross and rising on the third day as Lord forever. This is what's called the gospel, the good news. Your response to this truth, your relationship to the person described in this truth determines where you spend eternity. This is called saving faith. Listen, if saving faith does not mark your life, if you've never said to Jesus, Lord, I believe and worshiped him, the car's not even started. Whatever else you think you know about God or the spiritual life or making it to heaven, the car is not even started. Whatever frustration you have felt in this world or disappointment or confusion, it's because the car hasn't even started yet. And God is taking you to the first thing so that every other thing makes sense. So you have to believe. You have to believe what you just wrote. Why? The rest of the sermon gives you four things that come from this initial saving faith. Things that only can happen through faith in Christ. Here's the first one. Believe and you will be forgiven. You can write that down. Believe and you will be forgiven. The only place where you can find forgiveness for your sins is in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Check out Luke seven forty nine. We'll put it on the screen. Um, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There are many things people can say that could maybe put you off. But the one thing that Jesus said that got people riled up is he would just say, your sins are forgiven. And they'd be like, who, who does he think he is forgiving sins? Authority is something that either you have or you don't. Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins. Now, just as a social experiment, I want to challenge you to do something this week. The next time you find yourself on the road with someone who is speeding, breaking the speed limit. I want you to follow that person. And I want you to follow them all the way to the next place where they're going. When they pull over at work or in the Walgreens or whatever, I want you to walk right up to their window and knock. When they roll down their window, I want you to say, hey, you were going pretty fast back there. In fact, I don't have a, I don't have a you know, clock, but I would guess you were going about 20 miles over the limit. And, uh, you know, I could write you a ticket, but I'm going to let you go this time. Okay, I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to be watching you. And if you even... Crest over the speed limit the next time. I'm going to be right on your tail. What do you think that person would say to you? You don't have the authority to issue me a ticket. Who do you think you are? Okay. Imagine the audacity if you went up to that same person and you said, hey, I realized you were breaking the speed limit and, you know, that's an infraction and breaking the laws of sin. And I could forgive your sin if you'd like. Would you like me to forgive your sin? What do you think they might say? Like, you don't have the authority to... Jesus could say that. Jesus could say that. He had the authority. Only God could forgive sin. He had the authority to forgive sin. 
what exactly is sin? Uh, sin is a legal infraction. It's, it's a legal act. You have broken God's law. There is a moral law in the universe. The reason why you know what right and wrong is, the reason why today we will be watching closely every replay to make sure that the rules are followed is because we have an intrinsic understanding that there is a right and that there is a wrong. And we expect other people to agree to our system of right and wrong. Okay, Um, And this desire for justice and fairness and right comes because we are built like God. And God is just. And he makes right, he makes wrong. Those things come straight from his nature. Okay, and when we violate a law, it's because we come. We are, we are made from a divine righteous being. So your sin is breaking God's law. You are a lawbreaker. And therefore, forgiveness is when in the legal sense, God lets go of your offenses or releases uh, your, your, your sins or sends away the things that are stacked against you. God needs to do something to your sins that you can't do. He needs to forgive you in his court of law. You can't even get one sin taken off your record. Okay? Only Jesus can say, I've paid your moral debt at the cross. I've died in your place. I have the righteousness you need. I can give it to you, and I can take away your sins because I paid your penalty. Only Jesus can do that. Many of us, though, don't even act like we need forgiveness. We, we, we don't go around thinking that there is an awesome, amazing God who is holy cannot endure sin, who we have provoked to wrath. Okay, we don't think, we don't live that way. We think, oh, what's in the past is in the past, and, you know, I maybe have sinned, I haven't done any of the big ones, or, you know, I'm not as sinful as that person. We have all these ways of reasoning through our sin, and so we conclude that we don't need forgiveness from a holy God. But Jesus was real. He was honest. Check out John 8, 24. We'll put that on the screen. Say this with me, nice and loud. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound like gentle Jesus with baby soft hands who loves me regardless of how I treat him. Did that really come out of Jesus' mouth? Yeah. Yeah. If you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. Only Jesus can forgive you and solve your sin problem. Do you know there's a moment coming in the future when you are faced with a comprehensive, unabridged, detailed account of every sin you've ever committed? Do you know that day's coming? In Revelation 20:12, it speaks of this day. It says this, and I saw the dead, great and small. That'll be you. Standing before the throne. That'll be you. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There's a book with your name on it. It's going to be opened. God is keeping impeccable track of everything you do in this life. Nothing will be left out. There will be nothing hidden that isn't revealed. There will be nothing forgotten that isn't brought back to remembrance. Things that happened in days that you don't even remember happened are listed and chronicled at this moment. Sins that you've committed are listed. Things you've thought. Things you felt. Motives you had behind your actions. Good things that you left undone. It's all being written down and the pen is moving at this very moment. Books will be opened. Your book will be opened. I was thinking about this this week and I thought, man, there are so many days... I. 
I don't even remember they happened, and God's got a total account of that day. Uh, one of my uh, friends from elementary school posted a picture on Facebook this week. Apparently, she had a birthday party, invited a bunch of us, and we went down to the beach swimming. So check this out. Here's a picture she threw up on Facebook just to embarrass all of us. Can you find me? You know where I am? Uh, I'm over there on the left. I'm the kid with the dorky glasses sticking his head out. Do you see that? And look at that hair. Isn't that styling? That, that's me, that little dorky 80s kid back then going to the beach hanging out. I thought that's, I don't even remember that. Man, but the day the book is opened, it's going to say, went to the beach, looked like a nerd, hung out, and then all these sins are going to be listed on that day. That day's in the book. Today's in the book. Your sins are all listed. God is just. The question is not whether or not you've sinned. The question is whether or not you've understood God has made a provision to take care of your sin problem. Um, and now, yeah, when you drive around in Chicago, do you get frustrated by those traffic cameras, the ones that check whether or not you stop at the red lights and then send you a ticket in the mail? Aren't those frustrating? Okay, but listen, if you lived in Finland, uh, they're, they're testing out these traffic cams. We've got a picture of them. They monitor how fast you're going. They can check to see if you are up to date with your insurance. They know if you're wearing a seatbelt, and they can even spot if you have tax violations from the past from 150 feet away. Within a few seconds, a computer can generate a violation notice of multiple tickets that Officer Friendly can deliver straight to your car. Wow. All right. You think it's bad to live in Illinois with those cameras that are checking that? Wow. How about that? But even more so, understand that God's traffic cameras catch everything. God's street cams don't miss a thing. In fact, they see right into your thoughts and your motives, everything. And it's all being written down right now. The Bible talks of something called a record of debt, which is set against you. And on the day that you appear before judgment, the warehouse door is going to be opened and all of these boxes will be there with page after page after page of your life. And guess what? The verdict verdict is going to be guilty. But there is this other book that it says that's open, and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life, meaning if you have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he puts your name in his book. And though your book will condemn you, he'll check his book, and if he finds your name, you've been forgiven. If your name's not in there, you're condemned forever. That's the truth of Scripture. Numbers 32.23 says, Your sins will find you out. Hey, you are guilty, but are you forgiven? That's the question. Believe. Believe that Jesus is God's Son who came from heaven to save sinners by dying for them on the cross and rising on the third day as Lord forever. Why? Because you'll be forgiven. You'll be forgiven of your sins and the great record of death that is standing against you. Here's the second reason. Believe because Jesus is the only way. Believe because it's the only way possible for you to enter into an eternal relationship with God the Father. Uh, It's the only way the engine starts spiritually. Believe. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Bible records that there's only one single file line getting into heaven, and Jesus is at the head of that line. This is so offensive to our sensibilities, our cultural sensibilities today, because we're told that, well, who are you to tell another person what they believe is wrong? I believe there are many ways that could take us. In fact, I think all faiths basically are the same thing, leading to the same end. That's what we're taught today, right? Uh, But is that true? Can it be true? 
the Bible doesn't say it's true. The Bible says there is one way. Uh, frankly, I think if you face the reality of your depravity and how awful your sins are and how holy God is and how righteous he is to cast you away from him forever. And if that truth grips you and you understand that, you're grateful that there even is one way. That he even made one way. What's withstanding on the Titanic looking down at the lifeboat that's big enough for the whole world to step on and saying, well, I'm disappointed with the number of options I have right now. I would prefer if there were four different lifeboats that could take me to shore. Hey, hallelujah, God made a way. He made a way. And he said, it's the only way. That's what he said. Believe because Jesus is the only way. But the thing is, we try and make other ways. We try and make other ways, and these are dead ends according to the Scripture, but many people have placed their hope in these other ways. Uh, the first other way I would say is this, other way. You can write these down. Uh, I'm, I'm a good person. Other way, number one, I'm going to be a really good moral, law-abiding person. And if you ask someone, hey, if, if you die tonight, you go to the pearly gates and they say, why should I let you in? You know, And what would you say? And so many people, most common answer I'm a pretty good person. I've lived life the way I thought it should be lived. And there's this moralizing that happens. And the person basically says, well, because of these good things I've done, and then they'll say things like, and you know, I, I didn't kill anyone, and I didn't, you know. So they list the things they didn't do. Based on the good things I did do, and based on the list of things evil that I didn't do, I'm probably going to get into heaven. That's called being a good person. This is not a way to get to heaven. Listen, God doesn't save good people. God doesn't save good people. Morality will not save you. Jesus will save you. If you tell yourself that you are moral enough to be acceptable by God, then you don't know you need a Savior. You don't know the filth that sin has filled you with. You don't know your spiritual dilemma. You don't know your, uh, your, the fact that your soul hangs in the balance because the wrath of God is coming on you and you think that a few good things are enough to turn that away and it's simply not true. Uh, this doesn't even work in a human court of law. Can you imagine if someone thought they could bring their good things into the human court of law to try and get their bad things taken away? Can you even imagine that? Okay, sir, you're on trial for molesting children. What do you say for yourself? Well, I've done some good things. I helped my neighbor like shovel his driveway when it was really snowy. Would that work in a human court of law? Do your good deeds take away the bad deeds you've done in a human court of law? And yet we, we act as if we've got this giant eraser called my good deeds and I'm just going to walk around with my giant moral eraser and it's going to take all of my bad things away because I've done good things. That doesn't even work in the human courts. You're trusting that to work in the heavenly courts? It won't work. John 6, 29, Jesus answered them. They said, what what must we do to be saved? Tell us the good works and we'll do them. Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Meaning, give us the list of works that we can do to be saved. The list is empty. You can't. You want the work? The work is believe I have done the work. The work is believe I have done the work. That's what Jesus says. On the cross, he did all the work to take away your sin problem. You have to stop working or you'll work your way straight to hell. I'm a good person. Morality won't save you. Here's the second other way. I'm a religious person. I'm a religious person. Um, 
I've been through the seven steps that my church has set out. I've done the three rituals. I've prayed these prayers. Uh, Religion can't save you. And do you know Christianity isn't a religion? Religion is man working his way to please God. Christianity is God working to save you. Christianity is not a religion. It is not a list of works you do to earn God's favor. It's a giving up. Christianity is a faith. It's a faith. It's a saving faith that my gracious God has done the work and he gives me, he gives me as a gift what I could never work for or earn. But many people are going to show up in heaven and they're going to, they're going to break out their religious sash and show all their badges to God. Look, I went through this religious training and I did this, you know, moral, and then I, I went to these classes and I took this many Bethmore Bible studies and I went through Awana and got this award. And See my sash? Um, but religion can't save you. Jesus can save you. Religion will condemn you. So I'm a good person. That's not going to do it. I'm a religious person. Nope, that way doesn't work. Uh, Here's the third one. I'm a tolerant person. I'm a tolerant person. Um, Tolerance says I'm going to really work hard to include everyone no matter what they believe. Tolerance is extending a grace to a person regardless of the truth that they have embraced. That's tolerance. Basically, tolerance is cutting the truth in half and saying, whatever else you believe, you know, I'm just going to say, hey, you're in my party. God's going to accept you and welcome you, and I'm going to be a tolerant person. God doesn't save tolerant people. God doesn't save religious people. God doesn't save good people. And tolerance is trying to get the job of salvation done with half the truth. Okay, but Jesus came from the Father full of grace, full of truth. We believe we have to show people and extend to people 100% of the love Christ has called us to extend and 100% of the truth that he has called us to believe. If we cut the truth in half, we don't have a life-saving message. If we cut the grace in half, we're not really being his followers. Tolerant people want us to believe that, you know, pretty much everyone believes the same thing, right? Or all of them can be true, even if they're different. This is the voice of tolerance. Um, But here's the thing. It doesn't make any sense. Muslims don't believe what you do. They believe that Jesus was a prophet who never died on the cross. Never died on the cross. Can that save them? Jehovah's Witnesses think Jesus is the archangel Michael. Can that save them? Mormons believe Jesus is Satan's brother, and Jesus was made when God had intercourse in heaven. He's a created being. Can that save them? See, the voice of tolerance will often turn a blind eye to the glaring inconsistencies of other faiths. They will smother the truth and say, well, they're basically the same thing and ignore the reality that they are not the same thing. And God won't save tolerant people. He doesn't save tolerant, open-minded, inclusive people. Tolerance doesn't save. Jesus saves, and only Jesus saves. Listen, there is only one way that God has provided Only one way. And have you come to the point, the reality, the belief in the core of your being that there is only one Savior who can do away with your sin problem? Do you agree that that's true for you? Do you agree that for all of the other people in your life, regardless of their background or beliefs or whatever, that Jesus is the only way for them? He's the only way. 
And do you understand that believing that is the most loving thing you can believe, especially if it's God's lifeboat to get them into paradise with you forever? Jesus is the only way. Not being a good person or a religious person or a tolerant person. God saves people who believe the truth about Jesus. He is the only way. Only Jesus came down from heaven, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, paid the penalty for sin, rose again in victory, ascended to the right hand of God, and now offers the free gift of eternal life to those who trust him. There is one way. There is one Savior. Have you recognized that Jesus is your only way? That's where it all starts. If you haven't, the car's not even on yet. You're going nowhere with God. That's your frustration. It's what he wants you to see. Saving faith is the starting point. Believe and you'll be forgiven. Believe because Jesus is the only way. And Here's the third one. Believe because unbelief leads to eternal punishment. Go ahead and write that down. Believe because unbelief leads to eternal punishment. Frequently, Jesus alerts us to our spiritual peril. He knows the future. He's seen it in advance. He's omniscient. He sees your spiritual condition. He sees your destiny. He came to warn you in advance, all right? You can't see your own spiritual soul. He can. You can't know the spiritual condition of the person next to you exactly. He can. He can warn you in advance of things that he sees in advance, and that's why he came down. Some people say, Jesus never talked about hell. Oh, yes, he did. John three seventeen to 19. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be, here's the word, saved. Saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. I need to be saved. Not taught, not encouraged, not shepherded, not loved. Saved, saved. And the loved ones in your life need to be saved, rescued, delivered, pulled from the wreckage of this world. Saved is the word. And Jesus warns that if you're not saved, you're condemned. It's one or the other. I saw a video this last week. It's just so moving. There's a man in a car in a river that flipped upside down. They're trying to save him. Check it out. How did it end? How did it end? Would you believe me if I told you it ended with him calling out from within the car? I'm good. Thanks, but I, I, don't, I don't really need your help. No, no, you, you need to be rescued. No, I'm, I'm good. I disagree. I think I'm fine. Get out of the car. No, I'm fine. You wouldn't believe that, right? How does it end? I'm going to make you wait. Because the Bible says that's you in the car. That's you. You need to be saved, rescued. 
You can think whatever you want about your life and how good you are and where you're going, but when Jesus looks down and says, you need something only I can do, and calling into the car, trying to open the door, you need to be saved. You're in the car. Jesus came to rescue you. You can disagree. It doesn't change the fact that you are in spiritual peril. And he came to warn you. Saved from what? Saved from hell forever. Forever. Once that car is swept down river, you refuse, there's no hope. Believe because unbelief leads to eternal punishment. Number four, here's the last one. Believe because, and this is the great news, anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. Matthew twenty-one thirty-two, Jesus says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. He's, Jesus is hollering at the religious folk. He says, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you didn't afterward change your minds and believe him. Imagine walking into a room full of crooked IRS agents who have successfully stolen hundreds of thousands of dollars of your money. Tax collectors back then were crooked. They stole and Rome didn't even care. Go ahead, take, take whatever cut you want. We'll turn away. They were awful. They were crooked. I mean, worse than Illinois politicians. I'm serious here. Imagine walking into a room of those IRS agents and hookers, all hookers, made their life with their body, prostituting, slutting themselves out. Jesus says that room of people is going to heaven because they believed. And he looks at the religious guys and he's like, and you're not because you don't know you need me. You don't know you need to be saved. You think you're all good with your religion and your morality. Uh, That room over there is getting saved. Hey, if the people in that room can get saved, Jesus is telling you, you can be saved. You can be saved. Mark 1, 14 to 15 tells us how. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's a turning point in the life of every saved person where you are going headlong into sin. You love your sin. You love the darkness. But you hear the call unto Christ. Repent means to turn the entirety of your being, to turn away from your sin and your love relationship with the world, to turn to Christ and through faith in Him to be saved. He calls you unto salvation. He does the work of changing you. He gives you the grace to walk forward in a new life. Your responsibility is to repent and to believe. That's all you can do. That's all He's calling you to do. I can tell you my turning point. I was in college. I was a, a drug user, a thief, a filthy uh, person who got away with a lot of stuff and pretended to be a moral being, but um, I was very rough. Here's a picture of me. That's me and my girlfriend, Lauren, at the time we were dating. That's Lauren, my girlfriend. Pink Floyd shirt. And uh, my buddy, who was the bass player in my metal band, invited me to church. And so I went. I heard the truth of the gospel. Spent a whole year fighting against it meeting with the pastor and drilling him with questions. How could this be true? Do you think you are? And finally collapsing and saying it's true and I'm sinful and I need a Savior. And just kneeling beside my bed and closing my eyes and saying, Jesus, I know it's true. You died on the cross for me. I'm a sinful being who deserves hell, but give me grace, save me, and promise me that I'm going to heaven. That's how it started. That's my turning point. Do you have that story? God has ways of getting you ripened to the truth of Christ. That testimony video we saw during the offering, God masked Fred up, cancer twice in the same year. 
I mean, ravaged him on the inside physically to show him his need of God. And maybe God has a way. He's been getting your attention. I don't know how he's done it. Painful relationship, broken marriage, addiction. I don't know. He's showing you you need him. He's showing you the car is flipped and the water is rushing through and you need help. He's showing you that. And he's brought you here to hear this truth that if you believe in Christ, you can be forgiven. He's the only way. If you don't believe, you'll face eternal punishment because impeccable records are being kept. But anyone can be saved regardless of what you've done. God brought you here so you can hear that truth this morning, so you can respond. And just as in the beginning, Jesus walked up to that man who he had healed and said, you believe in the Son of Man? He's saying that same thing to you right now. Do you believe in me? The response of the blind man was, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped. Will that be your response? How did it end? How did the rescue end? Let's see. Christ came to save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to live the perfect life, to die on the cross, to rise again in triumph, victory over the grave, to ascend to your presence, and to now freely give the gift of eternal life to all who are unworthy, but who will repent and believe. Father, I just pray for those in this room who are ready. They know that it's time. They may want to pray to receive Christ as Savior, and I want to lead them in that prayer. So, Father, as I pray right now, and they pray along with me in their hearts, hear their prayers and respond. Father God, I agree with you that I am sinful, broken, beyond repair, And I can't save myself. I agree with you that my sins have purchased me hell. But I believe that you sent your son into the world to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I believe that. I believe he rose again. And here and now, I give my life to Christ. Here and now, I ask for forgiveness. Here and now, I repent and turn to you. Save me. Help me. Give me the hope that I will be with you forever in heaven. Not based on anything I've done, but based on everything Jesus did at the cross. Father, I just ask on behalf of those who prayed that for the first time, that you would send a a flood of hope into their hearts. Lord, you've said never will you leave them, never will you forsake them. 
you've put their sins as far away from you as the east is from the west. When they appear before you, their name will be found in your book. Their sins will be thrown far from you, and they will enter, enter paradise with you forever. Thank you for making a way, Father. Thank you for saving. And I pray, O oh Lord, that those who are saved today would obey what the Scripture says. And you call every saved person to be baptized. Pray that you give them the courage to come forth, just as Fred did, to share their story, to be baptized, to show that you have given them new life. Father, we give you all glory, for salvation is from the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.